Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you for the fact that we live in a country where we have the freedom to worship you corporately this way. Thank you for your grace in that. We don't have that because we deserve that or because we're any better than our brethren in other countries. It is a just evidence of your grace towards us, Father, and we thank you. I pray that this morning we might cherish and treasure our time together as we have sung songs to you. Now we pray that you would give us humble and teachable hearts as we open up your word and look at a passage that is so critical for our understanding of the ministry and the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to not only be hearers of your word, but doers who are not, who are not self-deceived, that we would apply these truths to our hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38 is our text for this morning. We're just going to begin to look at that text this morning. But I do want to read, since we haven't been in the Gospel of Mark in a few weeks, I want to read Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38 this morning. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. This is the Word of God. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he, questioned by, and he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. What we have here in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, is really the climax. Some commentators have called this the mountain peak of the gospel of Mark. Everything has been building up to this point. All of Jesus' Teaching and his miracles have been building up to this climactic point of the letter. It's also the hinge passage. It's the turning point passage where everything now that follows this particular text flows from what is revealed here by our Lord Jesus Christ and what he says here. Everything that follows flows from this particular text and we've seen, we began to see a few, a couple of months ago that there are three crucial questions that are answered in this amazing passage. 
The first question is in verses 27 through 30. We get the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And of course, Peter, after Jesus um, pointedly asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? He answers and says, you are the Christ. And the parallel passage in Matthew says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. You're the long awaited one. And then in verses 31 to 33, we get the answer to the question, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? And of course, contrary to what they expected, the predominant um, expectation for the Israelites of the day was that Jesus would be a, a Messiah who would come and he would be sort of a radical revolutionary who would deliver them from Roman oppression. And instead, what Jesus reveals to them in verses 31 through 33 is that he's going to be a suffering, rejected Messiah who's going to go to the cross to die for sins. That's why he has come. And so Jesus answers the question, why did he come? For what purpose? What was his mission here on this earth? And now in verses 34 to 38, we have the answer to our question, what does Jesus demand of us? What does Jesus demand of those who want to follow after him? Having understood his person, who he is, and then what qualified him, therefore, to uh, fulfill his purpose of dying for sinners on the cross, now in verses 34 through 38, we get this invitation from our Lord Jesus Christ like no other invitation that you will ever hear. It is one of the most powerful invitations in Scripture to those who desire to follow after Jesus Christ. Um, You know, for most of us, we grew up um, going to various churches, and maybe you were exposed when you visited these churches uh, to various invitations to follow after Jesus. I grew up attending various churches and spent time traveling uh, around the country and to other countries. And I remember just hearing so many invitations of what it means to become a Christian, what it means to follow after Jesus. There was the altar call that I experienced where the preacher or the leader up front would ask people to come forward and we would kneel down before him and he would lead us into a prayer um, or somebody would come over and they would pray with me. And I remember doing that a number on a number of occasions as a kid. There was the one-time profession where you would be asked to stand up or to come forward and just make a, a public pledge to Jesus, pledging allegiance to him, raising your right hand. I remember one of those particular invitations where I raised my hand and I said, I want to follow Jesus. And I walked away thinking that that all of a sudden made me a Christian, just doing that particular action. There's the walking down the aisle along with a lot of others. People who are sort of encouraging you, come on, come on, come on, let's, let's come on to the front together. Almost as if that is a guarantee that if you walk up to the front with a bunch of other people, that all of a sudden that is what guarantees that you're a Christian. There is also the filling out a, a card, making a commitment on that card, maybe making a profession of faith on that card. And oftentimes when I filled those cards out as a kid or as a youth, there was never any follow-up from the person to that profession of faith that I made. It was also the rededicating of your life. Maybe some of you experienced that. Or maybe at some point in the past, you made some profession of faith, you walked in now, you prayed a prayer, you signed a card or whatever, but there was no change in your life. And maybe months or years later, you quote-unquote rededicated your life. So you performed yet another action that somehow would guarantee that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Now listen, God can certainly use one 
or a combination of those to ultimately do an amazing supernatural work in your heart of saving you. I'm not discrediting that in any way, way, shape, or form. But so oftentimes we focus on the actions, those particular actions, which for many of these, they have no support in Scripture. And furthermore, those actions in and of themselves don't guarantee that we are followers of Christ. Unless God has touched your heart. Unless He has changed you from the inside out. How many of us prior to coming to Christ didn't maybe perform one of those? Maybe you had a family member who who was drawn that way and performed one of those actions. Maybe you have friends who did those things, but where are they now? They're no longer following after Jesus Christ. They're no longer walking with Christ. And this is why our, our passage is so crucial for us to look at together this morning. This is the, the purest invitation about the nature of discipleship, about what it means to follow Christ. And I want you to focus on that terminology, that language of following Christ. I love this. Look at verse 24. It says that Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, that word there, come after me, is the idea of arranging oneself behind someone, getting, getting behind someone as to follow after them. Go in their direction. And then he says in verse 34, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The idea of arranging ourselves behind someone. I love that terminology because oftentimes we talk about what it means to be a Christian. And this this terminology of being a Christian is bombarded with false notions like uh, praying a prayer, going to church, living by some moral code coming from a Christian family, that all of a sudden makes us a Christian. But stripped from that is the idea of continuing to follow Jesus Christ as a lifelong pattern of our lives. We don't often talk about Christianity as following after Christ, even in the present. We often look back at something that we did. And that might have been there was genuine conversion, genuine regeneration, the beginning point. But we continually into the present are to be Um, characterized as followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? We oftentimes don't think about this. So I love this terminology in verse 34. Being a Christian means that you are a disciple of Christ. That you are a follower of Christ. A learner who lives to follow the teaching and the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. Please hear me. There's no such thing as a Christian who sometime in the past prayed a prayer, signed a card, walked an aisle, but there's no transformation in your life. And in the present, there are no, there's not an active commitment to follow after Jesus, to lovingly obey his commandments. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. And so as we begin to look at this amazing passage, I want us to look at this invitation by our Lord. And I want us to hang our thoughts on three considerations for those who wish to follow Christ. Three considerations for those who wish to follow Christ. And the first one is, consider the cost of following Christ. Consider the cost of following Christ. Let me read verse 34 again. And Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross And follow me. Notice that there are three commands, three imperatives here. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, says Jesus. Those are three commands that highlight the cost of following after Jesus. 
Now, before we look at those three commands there, I want you to notice something that this, um, uh, that the audience here is a mixed bag of people. Okay. Notice in verse 34, there are the uncommitted amongst, uh, uh, uncommitted amongst this crowd. There are the, the crowd in verse 34. These are people in and around northernmost Caesarea Philippi. Um, we know that from verse 27, that that's the region that Jesus found himself with his disciples. It's about 25 miles north of, of the Sea of Galilee, primarily Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. Okay? And some of these people undoubtedly have had personal exposure to Jesus' ministry, to his miracles. Others amongst these people have heard about Jesus. Jesus is very popular. Jesus is very famous. He, people have heard or have seen and then, and then testified to others what he has done. So many of these people have at least heard about Jesus from afar. Most of these people are fickle, enamored, curious people. They want Jesus' miracles. They want Jesus' benefits. But hear me, they don't believe in him, nor do they love him from the heart. Well, there are always the uncommitted like that in the audience, aren't there? Even this morning, we have the uncommitted amongst us. Non-Christians. Those of you who have never turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Those people always exist. A mixed bag of people who are religious, the churchgoers, or those who occasionally attend churches, Christian churches, those who love perhaps to be around God's people, who love to be around um, the church of Christ, but you've never made a heartfelt commitment to follow after Jesus. You've never turned from your sins. You've never put your trust in Christ. You're trusting in your works. You're trusting in other things, but you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. There are always the uncommitted. Those who both don't understand nor embrace Jesus, His person and His work. And so there are the uncommitted here in this, this audience that Jesus preaches to. But there are also, notice in verse 34, the disciples. The disciples. He says He summoned the crowd with His disciples. These are the 11 plus Judas Iscariot, who obviously is uncommitted. We know this from later on, He, he uh, betrays Jesus. But here are the 11, those who are committed, they're followers of Jesus, they're disciples of Jesus, they've gotten a little taste of rejection because of their identification with Jesus, they've experienced disdain from people and to some degree some indifference, even perhaps from their own families, they're committed to following Christ and they are also part of the audience. Even they, even now, they were to check their own hearts in the light of what Jesus says here. In the light of the cost of following after Him. Not because they weren't following Jesus, but in light of the fact that they were following Him, they needed to be reminded of what they had signed up for. And so Jesus had a message for them, just as He has a message for us sitting in here today who are Christians. They are the committed. He has a message for us as well who are disciples who are following after Jesus. You know why, beloved? Because it's easy for you and I, as Christians, living in America especially, to succumb to a culture of convenience, of ease, of comfortable Christianity, of self-gratification, self-centeredness, of self-preservation. 
where it's about safety and security for us, and we're never willing to step out of our comfort zone by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God to serve Christ in the little things or the big things of life. So Jesus has a message for us as well. For those of us who maybe are struggling with, with our love for God and love for other people, whose love has grown cold and indifferent to our mission here on this earth and to our brethren here amongst us. These are very pertinent words for us as well. Not so that we are resaved, but that we might remember the cost of following Jesus that we have signed up for at the outset of our salvation and as it is the way of life for us as followers of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is about to say here has implications for both groups, for the uncommitted, non-Christians, non-followers, and for the committed as well. And so Jesus summons them in verse 34, the crowds with his disciples. And so the stage is set for the Lord's invitation, isn't it? The stage is set. Oh, how I've seen, I can't tell you how many times I've seen similar situations, a lot smaller settings, but where the stage is set for somebody to just get up, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, talk to people about forgiveness found in Jesus Christ alone, talk about sin against the holy God, talk about the good news of salvation from those sins, of eternal life, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and then nothing happens with those preachers. Jesus doesn't do that here. In fact, I attended a funeral just a few months ago. I mean, the, it was a packed house full of non-believers, people who were lost in their sins, who needed to hear about the holiness of God and their sin against the holy God and the fact that God had provided a Savior for the forgiveness of their sins so that they could be reconciled to this God. And you know what the guy did? He got up, never talked about sin, never talked about the holiness of God, very little mentioned Jesus Christ as one who would give them everything that they would ever want, all the happiness in the world, but no repentance, no putting their trust in this Jesus Christ. Low bar, right? Low bar. How many times have we seen that? How many times maybe have we been guilty of not sharing the whole message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Talking about sin. Talking about the holiness of God. Talking about God's provision. This good news of this one who came to this world to die for sinners. Who paid for sins on the cross. And so here we have the stage set. Maybe Jesus is going to tickle the ears of these individuals. The stage is set for a, a seeker-friendly, watered-down message that sets the bar very low so that the maximum number of people will continue to follow after Jesus and be enamored by Jesus. The stage is set. I mean, if Jesus wanted all of these people to continue to follow him, at least externally speaking, and he doesn't care about that, about genuine heartfelt commitment, his words are going to be watered down here. But that is ex- it's exactly the opposite that he does, right? That's not what he does. Jesus calls on them to consider the cost. What an example for us. What is the cost of discipleship? What are Jesus' terms and conditions if they are to follow after him? With all authority, notice Jesus commands three things. First, in verse 34, there is self-denial. Self-denial. Verse 34, if anyone, this is a universal call, if anyone wishes or wills or desires to come after me, you want to align yourself behind me, you want to follow after me, that person must deny himself. That's a command. It means to renounce, to abandon, to disassociate with. It's the same 
type of language that when Jesus is arrested later on, Peter will be asked three different times if he knows Jesus personally. And Peter will essentially say, I don't know the man. Remember that? I don't know him. Peter renounced Jesus, disassociated himself with the person of Christ. He didn't have a relationship with him. At that moment, at least, he's verbalizing that to people. Similarly, when we come to Christ, if we want to follow Christ, not only do we renounce all claims to gain favor before a holy God by our good works, by our religion, by all of those things, but we are essentially saying, I don't want to be associated with that person anymore. I know who I am. I'm a sinner who deserves God's wrath and judgment. I don't want to be that person anymore. I come to Christ with empty hands of faith. Lord, here's my sin. You nailed it to the cross. I trust in you. I don't want to be that person anymore. I want you to notice that this is a personal call. See the singular pronouns in verse 34? He must deny himself. Singular. The call here of Jesus is direct and personal to each person. This is not, well, I go to a church where there are a lot of people who are following after Jesus, and they, I see that people deny themselves in that church. So therefore, I'm identified with them. No. This is not, my parents are self-deniers and followers of Jesus, so therefore I am. Or I was born into a particular family of people who denied themselves. This is a personal and direct call to deny yourself to each individual during that day and even this morning today. To deny yourself if you want to follow after Christ. It's universal if anyone, and it's personal. He himself, singular, must consider the cost of denying yourself. It's also very significant that he says, if you notice in verse 34, He must deny himself. Himself. You must abandon yourself, the mighty self, as the central controlling influence of your life. You are no longer at the center of your universe. It is a call to relinquish the right to have authority over oneself. This is not simple asceticism. Um... I'm going to deny myself of certain things in the sense that I'm just going to refrain from drinking or eating certain things. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Though it might have implications for those kinds of things. This is not, I'm going to refrain from doing certain activities. Like, I'm not going to go on vacation with my family or enjoy a good movie or a good meal. That's not what this is talking about here. It's not talking about asceticism. It's not sinful in and of itself to enjoy within God-honoring parameters God's blessings. Pleasure in life within God-given parameters. So he's not talking here about asceticism. It's much, much deeper than that, isn't it? It's the renunciation of yourself as the ultimate authority of your life. That's what this is. Now, why does he put it this way? Why not focus on words or actions? Why not? And I think the answer is this. Because all sin, all disobedience, 
And most of all, the rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior, the rejection of Jesus' call to follow after him, ultimately flows from a heart of self-idolatry and self-worship, right? That's where all sin comes from, ultimately. It's the elevation of self above God and His Word and what He requires of us as His creatures. When we don't want to follow after Jesus, it's because we don't want to give up our sin and come to Christ. We want control of our lives. We want to be on the driver's seat of life. We don't want Jesus to be Lord of our lives. This was the case from the very beginning. Just think about the fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve chose to partake of the forbidden fruit, it wasn't just that they took a bite of something. Right? It's that in the fact that they disobeyed God's word to not partake of the, for, partake of the forbidden fruit, they elevated self above God. They sought to dethrone a good and loving God who had created them and given them full freedom and access to everything except that one thing. He said, don't eat from it because you will die. He even told them the consequences of it. What did they do? We are above God. We elevate ourselves above God and then they partook of the fruit. They questioned who God is, His rule over them. They became autonomous creatures and broke God's word. They sought to dethrone God. It's the same thing in our lives as well. When we choose a life of sin and rebellion, brothers and sisters, we are choosing self above God. We are committing idolatry. This is why in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it says that the, that the world, the non-believing world, has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature with a little c rather than the creator with a big c who is God blessed forever. Amen. This worship of self is seen in our very narcissistic culture, isn't it? We see it all over the place. We are obsessed with self-image. We are obsessed with self-gratification, self-fulfillment, self-esteem. You and I are fixated with how we look, how others view us, how others think of us, how others admire us. It's all about me, myself, and I. That's the culture in which we live. You know what that reveals? It's all about self. And our problem is not that we don't love ourselves enough, but that we love ourselves, what? Too much. And not God and others. That's the problem in our culture. So all of this comes down to self-worship and self-exaltation. And Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? Say no to yourself. Dethrone self at the center of your heart. Because that place belongs to who? To me, to Christ. God created us to glorify Him and enjoy Him in the present and forever. And we've gone away from that. That's at the core of sin and rebellion. We exalt self. We elevate self and seek to dethrone God. That's the problem. Say no to yourself, says Jesus. You're not the central controlling influence of your life. Stop living for self. Start living for me. That's what He's saying. Now, obviously, for those who... So for those of us who are not Christians, what does this mean? This begins with you acknowledging your sin before a holy God. Being broken 
about the fact that you have sinned against your holy and righteous Creator. It means asking for His forgiveness found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It means transferring trust from yourself and your resources to Jesus Christ alone. That's where this begins. You deny yourself. And can I remind you, following Christ is not about me and what Jesus wants. It's not me plus Jesus' desires for my life. It's not that. It's Christ and Christ alone. Now, this may sound radical for some people, but you know what? This is actually normal discipleship. Normal Christianity. This is Christianity 101. Basic Christianity. You know why it's so difficult for us to hear this call of Christ to deny self, to dethrone self and follow after, if we want to follow after him? Because our, we live in a culture where so many gospel presentations present Jesus as one option, as part of your life, as a footnote on the story of your life, as an add-on to your self-centered life with no reference to the fact that you need to cease to live for yourself, live for self-gratification, and now find pleasure in Jesus Christ alone. That's why it sounds so countercultural, because it is. Even in, in pulpits across the America. This is where, where the prosperity gospel came from, from the United States, and we exported it all over to other countries. The wealth, health, prosperity gospel. So it's so counterculture even amongst us. Jesus won't settle for you saying you are following him. Listen to me while at the same time holding on to some pet sin or some sinful relationship in your life, or some self-centered endeavor that compromises God's Word, Jesus won't settle for you following after Him and holding on to your sin that way. There's people who say, you know, as long as God is on my side, I'm okay. And you know what they mean? That they can live however they want, they can rule their own lives, and God has no say on it. They create a God of their own creation, is what they're doing. They want to hold on to their sin and claim to follow Jesus Christ. Discipleship following after Jesus is not me, myself, and I. It's about Christ and His Word. What He has is what He has said. Not my will, but yours be done, said Jesus, right? Not my will, but yours be done. And He taught His disciples in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer to pray this way, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers even reflect the fact that we want to see God's will done on earth beginning in our lives and in the lives of other people. And so this is a call to the uncommitted, to non-followers, to dethrone self, to say no to yourself as a central controlling influence of your life. But remember, there were also disciples who were there, right? His 11. There were also those who were genuine followers of his. They made the choice to follow Jesus. So what about for them? They needed to make sure that they were reminded of the fact that they had signed up for this lifelong commitment, right? That the way that they came to Christ was to be the way of life for them. And they were going to understand rejection and suffering even more now as Jesus heads to the cross, as Mark will tell us. It's the same for us who are Christians, beloved, who are following after Jesus. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, a text that we have come to again and again because it's so instructive for us as Christians 
for the way that we live life. It says in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And specifically in the context is to Christians... The grace of God has saved you. And then he says, instructing us, present tense verb, continually instructing, continually training us is the idea, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You know what the grace of God that has saved us teaches us to do? To continually now as Christians... Deny self, say no to self, and say yes to Christ and to His Word and to His will. Amen? That's the way of life for the believer. Consider today that following Christ means self-denial. Self-denial. Secondly, self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. Look at verse 34. You must deny yourself, says our Lord, and take up your cross. These are inseparable. You must deny yourself and take up your cross. Not only must you abandon self as a central controlling influence of your life, but this will show itself in a life of self-sacrifice. And we get this from the reference there to the cross, to the cross. James Edwards comments this, quote, modern culture is exposed to the symbol of the cross primarily in jewelry or figures of speech. For some, bearing a cross means putting up with inconvenience and unwanted hardship. But how vastly different was the symbol of a cross in the first century? I like that because it is. In Roman times, there were literally tens of thousands of people who were crucified. Some historians said that there was an excess of 30,000 plus Jews who had been executed on crosses during that time, or by that time, by the time of Christ. It was a form of of execution reserved for Rome's enemies and for criminals. And it was a prolonged, slow, gruesome, painful death, death on the cross. It was torture in slow motion. And it was public. It wasn't done in secret. Most crucifixions were performed along the main highways where everybody could see this is what happens to people who rebel against Rome or who are criminals who break the the, the laws of Rome. They were a public spectacle, these criminals. Most people had witnessed people carrying a cross on their back all the way to the the place, the destination of execution. Most people had witnessed hanging, corroding bodies on crosses, flesh being eaten by birds and worms. So when these people hear Jesus' demand to take up your cross and follow after him, if you want to be his disciple, what this meant to them is literally a slow, painful, shameful, humiliating um, form of execution all the way to death. That's what this signified for them. Think about this. This imagery for them must have hit them so hard because even before them was the reality of death by crucifixion. Boy, this is so countercultural, isn't it? James Brooks writes Jesus' words are so radical that Christians in the West have a difficult time relating to them. So true. As soon as something unjust happens, we are yelling, I'm going to fight for my rights. I'm an American. This is unfair. That's how we live. Even as Christians, we do this. As soon as somebody cuts us off on the street, right? Or somebody cuts us off in line at the local supermarket, especially during the holidays, we are 
yelling out, crying out for our rights. Where's the supervisor at this store? We don't want anybody, anybody to step on our toes. It's so countercultural here. How many false so-called gospel presentations have you not heard guaranteeing people health, wealth, and prosperity if they will only open up their hearts to Jesus? How many of you, even sitting in here, maybe this morning, have gotten irked or annoyed in your heart when somebody from this pulpit or teaching in this church has described the Christian life using terms like suffering and trials and pain and anguish, even to the point possibly of death and persecution in our country? No way. Not in America, baby. Not in America. Yes, in South Africa. Yes, in Southeast Asia. Yes, in China. Yes, in Korea. But never in America. We have rights in this country, right? No. The call of the gospel of discipleship is a call to lay down your life. Have a, be willing to lay down your life for Jesus Christ, beloved, every single day if you want to follow after Christ. Every day. Every day. You see, we want Jesus' crown, but we're not willing to embrace His cross. There are so many people who reject Jesus because they want to wear his crown. They love the talk, even in conservative churches, of this future kingdom where they can reign with Jesus. But they say, ah, but no suffering in this, in this world. If that means I've got to give up my sin, I don't want to follow that, Jesus. What? He's got a handle on my money, my possessions, my resources. There, there are implications for the way that I treat people. I might even have to leave my job because of it. I don't want to follow that Jesus. Let me create a Jesus of my own creation that I can follow. If that's how you think, you are not worthy of following Christ. You have a Jesus problem. You don't understand the Jesus of the Bible. He says to those who want to follow after him, you want a crown? Embrace my cross. Embrace my cross. Before exaltation there is, and the glorification, there is humiliation. Wasn't that what he modeled for us? Right? Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself, became obedient all the way to the point of death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. He's the pattern. Before exaltation and glorification, brethren, there is cross-bearing on earth. Every single day. This is a way of life for us as Christians. And by the way, by saying, Jesus saying, take up your cross, the Lord is not talking about the everyday inconveniences or hardships of life. You know, I see what you're saying, Pastor Kempis. The other day that I had a broken refrigerator, what a cross to bear, right? <laughs> my appliance, my toaster just was, was acting up. What a cross that was. I to- Amen, preach it, brother. Oh, my car is my, my cross right now, my broken down little car. What a cross to bear. Or I know what you're talking about because the other day I was looking for a parking spot at the mall to go shopping and I couldn't find a parking spot. What a cross to bear. What sacrifice. Or they got my order wrong the other day at Starbucks. Oh, I was thinking about this text, Pastor. Thank you for the reminder that when they don't get my fast food order right, I have a cross to bear. What, what's suffering? Is that what he's talking about? No. He's talking about carrying your cross in connection to the gospel, right? 
Jesus is talking about primarily about the indifference, the ostracism, the rejection that you and I experience because of and in direct association with Christ and his gospel and living out his word on this earth. I mean, look at verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. It's for him. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. To carry our cross refers to a willingness to be opposed, to be shamed, to suffer, even to death, if it came down to that in our country, because of our love for and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Some of you are already experiencing that, right? Difficult job situations where because of who you are, because of the fact that you try to be Christ-like and they don't fully understand why you live that way, why you function that way, why you want to be honest and be a truth speaker like Jesus instructs you in Ephesians 4, you are being ostracized. You are not going to be given that supervisor position. Maybe some of you are experiencing the loss or or tensions in, in friendships or relationships with family. And ultimately, it's not about you. The offense is Jesus Christ and the life that he calls you to follow. You understand? I love what one wise mentor once said, Kempis, ultimately, it's not personal toward you. It's not. It's not personal toward you. What did he mean? That in an ultimate sense, when we begin to unpack rejection and ostracism, what they have a problem with is Jesus Christ, right? As long as you are not in sin or doing something to violate Scripture, if you're sinning against that person, then you need to own that, and that's Christ-like to confess your sin, right? And to seek forgiveness. Ostracism, shame, suffering for the sake of Christ. Listen to me. Jesus carried his cross and died on a cross for sins. We as Christians carry our cross daily at Luke's account. Luke 9.23. We've got to carry our cross daily by laying down our lives for Christ, for his gospel, for his people, for the world, right? In, in, in extending the gospel to people. Romans 12.1 and 2. So that we are to present ourselves in light of the tender mercies of God as a living and holy, what? Sacrifice acceptable to God. Our life is no longer our own. Jesus owns you. Jesus owns you. You've laid down your weapons against a holy God. You've embraced his love, his loving forgiveness in the cross of Christ. He owns you. Jesus is your Lord. You've confessed him as Lord. That means that he's absolute supreme ruler over your life. There are implications for everything in life in the light of that. You're no longer your own master. In 1 Corinthians 15, 31 In the context of talking about the hope of the resurrection, Paul says this, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to this. I die daily. I die daily. What's he talking about? He's talking about this in the context of the dangers that he experienced because of Christ, because of the ministry of the word and the gospel that he was carrying out. He died daily. And my favorite verse in all of the Bible, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. This is the, the verse that by the grace of God, I pray that we would each want to be mentioned and referenced at our burial, okay? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Man, we need grace to be able to live that out. Amen? Can we say this? Do we want to live this out, beloved? We should. Colossians 1.24, Paul says this regarding his ministry, his gospel ministry, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Part and parcel of, of Paul's gospel ministry was suffering for the sake of Christ and his ministry to those believers. In light of God's mercy toward us, in light of God's love shown toward us in the sacrifice of Christ, can I ask you, do you rejoice in your suffering and your self-sacrifice for Christ every single day of your life? We need grace to be able to do this, right? John Piper writes, quote, Our suffering is not a tribute to Jesus unless we endure it because we love Him. And we love Him because He first loved us us. Wow. Every day we die to self, don't we? Every day. There's a sense in which positionally, by virtue of our union with Christ, we are dead to sin in Christ, but practically we live out the implications of our identity in Jesus Christ, functional dead death to sin, right? We're putting to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit of God. The grace-filled life for the Christian Brethren, is full of fork-on-the-road moments each and every single day. I know you feel it because I do. Every day I'm confronted with moment-by-moment choices, and we are too as believers. Whether we will deny self, die to self, or choose to put self at the center of life. In your marriage, every single day, when you choose not to love and serve your spouse, you are choosing self and not choosing to exalt Christ. You're elevating self and not loving Christ, loving your spouse, um, husbands, as Christ loves his church. Not submitting yourselves, wives, as unto the Lord. You're choosing self above Christ when you reject God's word and you live in rebellion against those commands. You have a Jesus and his word problem. You don't have a problem with the counselors who are counseling you along those lines. You have a Christ and his word problem. You are, you are uh, worshiping yourself, idolizing self, your expectations, your desires, your passions, your pursuits, and putting them before the word of God. As Christians, every day when you choose sin, when you and I choose sin, or, or you choose to live in known unrepentant sin, to live a double life, or entertain a sinful relationship in your life, you are choosing self above God every day. For those of us who are married, every day that you continue either secretly entertaining infidelity in your heart, or, may I say this, planning on leaving your spouse, you are choosing self above God. That's what you're doing. And you're denying the faith if you profess to know Christ, if that's where you're at. In our relationships, 
Every day that we harbor bitterness and unforgiveness, we choose not to reconcile with people. We choose not to go out of our comfort zone to ask forgiveness for offenses against somebody else. Every day that we do that and we practice hateful, uh, unloving kinds of relationships, we are choosing self above God. We are not laying down our lives for Christ, functionally speaking. Every day as Christians, we're confronted with choices. Will we sacrifice ourselves daily, functionally speaking, practically speaking, in our sanctification for the sake of Christ, live for Him who died and paid for our sins, or will we worship ourselves? That's the choice that we have before us every single day. We must count the cost. You must deny yourself. Self-denial, take up your cross, self-sacrifice. And thirdly, notice in verse 34, Jesus says, and follow me. That's self-submission. Self-submission. Self-denial, self-sacrifice, and self-submission. The verb follow there literally has a sense of getting behind someone. What do you do when you get behind someone? You, you go in their direction, you follow their lead, you're trusting them to take you to the intended destination, right? Follow me to command to continually follow Christ. There are some things that we can say here about following Jesus. It means a few things. One, it's a personal following. It's a personal following. Follow me. The call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus, is a call to enter and cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's love and devotion here, isn't there? John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have said, who you have sent. And Paul describes his Christian life this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I might know him, that I might know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, that I might know him. It's a relationship. It's also an exclusive following. It's an exclusive following. He says, follow me. In those days, there were many rabbis, many teachers that you could follow. You could be a disciple, a follower of a rabbi, and that meant adopting and promoting the teaching of that particular teacher or rabbi. Jesus says here, follow me. Not anyone else. Not any other religion. Not any other person. Not the world. Follow me. Not follow your heart. Young people, can I talk to you directly right now? It's not follow your heart. That is a lie from hell for you from the culture. Don't follow your heart. Your heart and my heart is wicked. It lies to us. It deceives us. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, says uh, Jeremiah. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, test the heart. God understands the heart. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus and his word no matter what the culture says, right? Because your heart deceives you. Your heart lies to you. Jesus says, follow me exclusively. There are no other ways to be saved. Not all roads lead to heaven. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Christ, right? He is the mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. It means follow him exclusively. This following is also a lifelong following. Lifelong following. Notice in verse 34, the verb to follow there. 
At the end of verse 34 is a present tense verb, meaning continually follow me. This isn't a one-time decision about him, but a call to follow him all of your life. This isn't, you know, I once prayed a prayer when I was a kid or many years ago, but now I'm no longer following after him. Maybe one day I'll rededicate my life, but now I really want to have authority over my life. You need to check your heart. Because chances are, that profession, whatever you did in the past, wasn't genuine. We can't lose our salvation. Once saved, always saved. If God truly saved you, but listen to me, there will be transformation in your life, right? If the Spirit of God lives in you, has come to permanently dwell in you as a Christian, if that profession of faith was genuine, then there was genuine heart transformation, and God began a process called sanctification to conform you into the image of Jesus, and that is an act of His power, not our own. So there should be change. It isn't, you know, I once dedicated my life, filled out a card, walked an aisle, but since then I haven't been following Jesus. You made a false profession of faith. It's either you were deceived or God doesn't have the power to conform you into the image of His Son. Which one is it? If you have not been following since any of those actions and you never were a follower in the first place, the issue is, are you following Him in the present? Not perfectly, not devoid of, uh, absent of struggles, but do you really desire to be like Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you see evidences of humility in your life where you really see yourself, not in comparison to others, but in the light of the holiness and the majesty of God? Oh, Lord, I'm such an unworthy sinner. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for conforming me into the image of your Son. Lord, help me in my ongoing struggle with sin. I want to be holy. I want to be set apart. I want to be like Jesus. Is that your heart? And when you fall on your face and you struggle, do you come and confess your sin to the Lord? Say, Lord, I don't want to sin that way. You're my heavenly Father. I love you. Thank you for your loving discipline for me. Help me to be holy. Help me to be set apart like your son Jesus. Is that the cry of your heart this morning? The issue is not perfection. It's progression, right? Not just of actions, but of desires. Affections for Christ. So this is a personal, exclusive, lifelong, finally an obedient following. Obedience is required of the relationship. Jesus said in John eight thirty one, "If you continue in my word, which is which is uh, another way of saying obedience. If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine." John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, there's the motivation. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and in the great commission we're called to make disciples teaching them to obey all that jesus has commanded right we teach them to obey christ out of what gratitude and love because he's their savior because he's our savior so this is an obedient following what a radical call isn't it and yet this is christianity 101 this is the ultimate invitation and the first consideration for us is this Consider the cost of following after Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this morning, if you are not a follower of Christ, why not? Are you willing and ready to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow after Jesus? You say, Campus, that's going to be really, really difficult. I can say to you after 26 years of walking with the Lord, Amen, yes, 
But you know what? The reward in the end is beyond anything that we will ever experience in any pleasure on this earth. Amen, Christians? Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. Imagine that. Imagine being in the presence of Jesus, unhindered by sin, right? And being able to worship Him and to reign with Him. Imagine being with your Lord, going home and being with Him. The call to follow after Jesus Christ has to keep that reward in mind. Amen? Because there's a, it's a broken world. It stinks to be in this world if there is no Christ. Really? I mean, it's... This is, this is a tough, sorrowful, sad world. There's a lot of sin all over the place. Wickedness, exploitation. If there is no Jesus, guess what? Man, this is really, really terrible, isn't it? But because of Christ, because Jesus has a re- resurrected, ascended, He's exalted, He's returning one day, we have hope. Amen, Christians? And you can have that hope as well. If you will deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after Jesus Christ today. Let me pray for us. And my brother, Brock's going to come up. Father God, thank you so much for the clarity of your word. Lord, thank you for these radical words from our standpoint of Christ. And yet we know that you give us the grace to embrace them. Father, I pray for those who are here who do not know you. Uh, Today would be the day of salvation for them. And for those of us who are Christians, may we we be reminded today of what we have signed up for. By grace and by the power of your Spirit, help us to live lives that reflect Jesus' words here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.